You're listening to Carbon Removal Newsroom, a weekly show about current events in the world of carbon removal, from technology and innovation to policymaking and job growth. Brought to you by Nori, the carbon removal marketplace. Hello, everybody, and welcome to uh, Carbon Removal Newsroom, the Friday, May 5th edition. I'm Radhika Mulgafkar, Head of Supply and Methodology at Nori. Today, we're talking to two people from Planetary Technologies. Last year, Planetary Technologies won the X Prize Carbon Milestone Award for their ocean-based CDR method. That same year, they tested their ocean alkalinity enhancement process in a small trial in England, partnering with the local water company. The test showed improved alkalinity and reduced carbon dioxide in local waters. And now the company wants to do a longer 120-day test this summer, hoping to remove 200 net tons of carbon dioxide from the water. Planetary has conducted public outreach about their plan and published a public code of conduct laying out how they intend to make the experiment safe. But last month, protesters gathered at the Gwythian Beach in North Cornwall, expressing concerns about the potential impact on the Bay's marine ecosystem. In a Guardian article about the project, Mike Kelland, CEO of Planetary Technologies, said, people often say to me, you wouldn't want to swim in this stuff, would you? But the answer is that we already do because it's hardly widely used in wastewater management. He assured that the company would be transparent and diligent in their evaluations and monitoring during the study. So joining us today are two people who are working firsthand on the issues of public accessibility and community outreach that we've set out to explore on these monthly episodes of Carbon Removal Newsroom. First off, I'd like to welcome Will Burt, Chief Ocean Scientist at Planetary. Hi, Will. Thanks for joining. Hi, good to be here. And Pete Targan, Planetary's VP of Commercialization and Community Relations. Hi, Pete. Thanks for coming. Thank you very much. So first off, I wanted to give Will just a chance to describe Planetary and give a brief history of the company and its technology, or maybe both of you in tandem. Well, I can certainly go first. I I joined the company about uh, just under a year and a half ago. So the company was fairly well established at that point. Um, I joined the company to be leading the ocean science component as there wasn't someone in the company yet who was really doing that. So I find myself now in a leadership position, uh, navigating the direction of our science programs and working with our academic partners to establish our science, both within the company and and beyond. And can you describe the technology just a little bit for our our listeners? Yes, sorry. So our technology is focused on ocean alkalinity enhancement, a specific kind of OAE. What we basically do is we take uh, an antacid, so that is often a a metal hydroxide, Magnesium hydroxide is the common product that we use. And we add that material to wastewater streams. And the reason we use wastewater streams specifically is a couple of good reasons. One, they are already highly permitted and regulated systems. So we operate within existing permits and that gives us really good guardrails to operate within. And the second reason is that those infrastructure, that infrastructure is already in place. So there's no need to build new infrastructure. Uh, it gives us a much lower carbon footprint and just a greater ease of operation, I guess. Uh, so we add that alkalinity, that antacid to the ocean, and then we uh, use 
a variety of monitoring systems, both within the wastewater pipe and within the ocean to, and we apply those measurements to our measurements reporting and verification framework, which we've published online and are happy to hear more comments about, and we are improving over time. We combine those two together and we generate carbon removal credits that are, you know, very well established to be durable and uh, and additional. So uh, we we consider them very high quality. And can you briefly tell us where you think your company is from a technical readiness perspective? You know, TRL one through ten. So from a TRL level, you can actually think of our business in two parts. Ocean alkalinity enhancement, you need the ocean and you need the alkalinity. There are many places on earth right now that you can get the alkalinity. Um, there are fewer places that you can get alkalinity um, at a low price with a low carbon footprint. We are developing a number of sources and a specific uh, technology approach to refine our own very low cost, very low carbon intensity alkalinity that's at a TRL early, like three or four. The important part that we're doing now is actually adding that alkalinity into the ocean. And we are at a very high TRL. We know how to do that. We've tested it. We aren't ready for full deployment yet at all, but only because we want to ensure its safety and its efficacy. So um, the actual addition of the alkalinity into the ocean through these wastewater or other outfalls is at a high and so I'm I'm curious, uh, gen generally, when you get to full TRL and you're deploying your technology all over the world, where will planetary technology be most likely to be used? Coastal regions, northern Atlantic, you know, like what are the best conditions for it? And um, outside of Cornwall, are there any other tests currently underway or anything you could tell us about future testing. So I think given that we are at this stage focusing on wastewater streams, our alkalinity additions will occur very near to the coast um, within a few kilometers. Um, and that that's really important because it's going to impact the way in which we model the system. Uh, you, you can't really use a global model to look at systems that are that coastal. Um, so that that's where we're certainly going to start. I think there is a, a really large capacity for that wastewater addition. So I think we can go quite a long way with that model. Um, and, you know, so so the areas in which this will work, uh, there are a few different ways that that this sort of wastewater addition can work. You know, Cornwall is a really ideal place. And that's because you've got a fairly broad and shallow region of the coast there. So uh, for those who know a bit more about ocean alkalinity enhancement or those who don't, you need, in most cases, uh, an air-sea interaction for that CO2 to either be taken up from the atmosphere or to, uh, to stop CO2 outgassing from occurring. You need some kind of, of air-sea interaction. So being in a shallow environment where the surface water is in contact with the atmosphere basically all the time uh, is a really important component. So, so Cornwall was identified very early on as an ideal location where you're gonna have that interaction for months at a time where that uh, air-sea interaction can take place. Uh, our, our test site, the second uh, test site, which is 
probably as far along as the UK site is here in Halifax, where I'm located. Uh, that's largely because we've established a really strong collaboration with the local university, Dalhousie University here. Uh, multiple large interdisciplinary projects underway to have academic groups verify the efficacy and safety of this process. It's really a, a brilliant team. So the environment here is also conducive because it's a sort of a sheltered harbor where I live. And that gives you a better chance of measuring these signals um, because there's not as much of a dilutive environment in sort of a, a constrained coastal sort of harbor. So that, that presents a really good opportunity here in what we call the Bedford Basin area. And we are thinking, we are exploring a number of sites in the US um, through government grants that have come up. Uh, we're, we're hoping to hear back about those shortly. We're developing partnerships with wastewater operators and Pete can touch more on those. And we have a site that we're looking at in British Columbia as well in Canada, um, where you have sort of a different setup than the setup in Cornwall and, and Halifax, but probably an equally interesting one. So not all the wastewater pipes need to be the same. Um, there's a, a few different ways that you can go about this process. So just one quick follow-up question. I notice everywhere you at least could talk about specifically, it was sort of in cold water ocean, uh, cold ocean waters. Is that a necessity or is that just coincidence? That's a coincidence, I would say. You know, we we have a footprint in the UK. Uh, we've had people working for the company from the basically from the outset in the UK, um, largely for one reason because we had a, a government grant early on um, awarded there, and then the company, of course, is founded in Canada, so you can't really find anything but cold up here um, in terms of water temperature. So that I would say it's just a coincidence at this point. All right. So Pete, I'm curious to hear from you, one, if you want to, uh, you know, expand a little bit more on some of the potential partnerships, but also how have the local governments responded to your projects? I mean, outside of the academic work you're doing with uh, the Canadian University, how are local governments and partners responding to your projects? So let me answer your first question, and that is regarding partnerships. We are seeing a trend from wastewater and power companies around the world to try to actually involve themselves in the climate change response and actually try to improve their operations. And so we're seeing interest from many different organizations, mostly around North America, also around UK, some around Ireland um, and Northern Europe. Those are the places that we've heard from first, a little bit in Australia as well. So there seems to be a growing realization that these types of organizations can take a real active role in a positive response to climate change, which is great. Um, regarding local um, governments, most local governments have some kind of net zero policy in place already. And so, for example, um, in Halifax, there are a few organizations, not only the local town, but, but kind of the regional um, water quality uh, monitoring and regulation that is trying to move forward in terms of addressing climate change. And so they generally welcome us. It's also the same thing in Cornwall in the UK. The Cornwall County Council in general is has been relatively supportive. They would like more information, but members of the environmental boards, for example, have generally been um, uh, very interested in finding out more information. Um, 
at a local level um, in Cornwall, there are it's kind of a tale of two cities. Some of the local towns really want us to continue to engage and move forward. Others um, are less aware of what's really happening, perhaps, and are more concerned about their own specific situations and don't want to take any risks at all. And the only way that you cannot take a risk is the only way that we can be sure exactly what's going to happen is if we do nothing. And if we do nothing in terms of climate change, then we know that the ocean is going to become more acidic and that the environment is going to become hotter and stormier. So, yeah, I mean, I'm I'm curious um, how you work with local communities who are passionate about their coast. You kind of touched on like the differences between town to town and even, uh, you know, you get government support, but then you don't maybe have community support. And so when you think about the approach um, as you move forward, how would you advocate or how do you think is the best way to engage with local communities, particularly when coastlines invoke such emotional responses? I completely understand the emotional response. I have an emotional response to my local to my local ocean. I, I would like to see it very highly respected and I don't want any harm to come to the local ocean. Uh, my view is that the ocean around the world is under attack by climate change, not by any specific individual, but by climate change. And so um, in order to respect the ocean, we need to help restore it. But in terms of community engagement, um, it's a, it's, in my view, it's a, it's a process of two-way education. We need to learn from the local community the specifics about their environment and, because they live there. They know those waters better than we ever will, um, except in the case where, for example, Will lives in Halifax. Um, and so he's very well, uh, uh, you know, very well knowledgeable about that. But we, planetary, need to understand the specifics about those waters in that area. Um, and we need to learn about, well, what issues might we need to take into account that we haven't taken into account. And, um, and at the same time, we need to do a good job, and in Cornwall especially, a better job of explaining what it is that we're really trying to do and uh, make sure that people understand what ocean alkalinity enhancement is, what it's not, and um, make sure that they understand the right path that we see for deploying ocean alkalinity enhancement over time. Certainly, we are nowhere close to a full deployment um, in any location. We're at the very early part of an engagement where we want to do some initial studies to make sure that it is safe. And so there's an education process kind of both ways. Um, and that's something that I think has to happen um, in order for both parties to make a decision about whether or not it's an appropriate site, an appropriate project area for us to go ahead and do an ocean alkalinity enhancement project. So I um, watched some of the video of protesters in Cornwall, and I actually was pretty impressed with both their seemingly acknowledgement of the need for CDR. They even seem to have pretty good understanding of the technology. So I thought you guys must have done a, a pretty good job of educating the community about that. But it was still this sense of like, don't test it in our surf. If it's safe, maybe bring it. So 
And I think this is not a theme that's limited to planetary or oceans. It's a theme we see throughout CDR, right? That many people understand its need, but also don't want facilities and testing happening near them. So how do you address that real fear that scientific answers cannot, you know, assage or maybe asked a little differently? How can the broader industry start connecting emotionally with local communities and build the trust needed to let these testing and facilities be built? Not sure who's best to answer it, so I'll leave it to you too. Well, let me take a crack at that to start. Um, we planetary did not do a good job before our first public engagement with getting information out to the public about the technology itself, the specific planetary um, approach to building alkalinity and sourcing alkalinity and then adding it into the ocean. So not the technology, we didn't do a good job about that. We didn't do a good job about explaining what our process is and what we thought kind of in the long run this might be. And so that gap left a void and nature abhors a vacuum, right? And so there was a an outpouring of fear based on an unknown. And, um, and from that point, it's been very hard for us to recover and actually rebuild that trust. And so because we didn't have good information available at the beginning, people thought, and understandably so, that we were actually trying to hide something. And it was actually just the opposite. We thought it was kind of obvious because we swim in these waters every day, so to speak. We live in this every day. And so I thought, oh, well, these answers are obvious. People, you know, people just figure it out and we're here to explain it a little bit. Um, and so uh, connecting emotionally uh, is a second question that we do need to figure out how to do because it isn't just about facts. Facts are very important in this conversation. And even though there has been a lot of emotion with many people in Cornwall, when we've engaged with either individuals or small groups in um, a, 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 a time where it's not super high pressure, where it might be a small group, um, people come to understand it and they, they, by it, people understand the project and the need for it and they can make a decision about, well, yeah, that actually sounds like a pretty good idea. They may still decide, oh, I don't want you to put this into our waters because um, for whatever reason, they don't want it in their area. Um, not because they're experts in it, but they just don't want it there. They don't see the upside to themselves personally. And, you know, everyone has the right to their own opinion and a right to try to protect their own corner of the universe. Um, that's certainly an understandable thing. Um, at the same time, we as a society have to figure out, well, where are we going to deploy climate solutions that can be a real positive? We believe, and of course, if you look at the date of climate removal 2023, ocean alkalinity enhancement is potentially the largest form of carbon removal, like by two and a half times greater than, than direct air capture. Um, and so we as a society have to figure out how do we, how do we find these sites um, that are going to be um, good for ocean alkalinity enhancement and at the same time, make sure that we listen well to the community and come to some kind of mutually agreeable decision. Um, if there are 
you know, two or five or 10 or 100 or 300 people who don't want something to occur in their backyard, what happens in a population of 100,000? I mean, what is that process? Who makes that decision? Um, that's an open question, I think. Um, it currently has an answer. There currently is a regulatory body that decides whether or not this, this project can go forward. We as a CDR community need to decide, is that, that is society's current answer. Do we want to continue to use that answer? So what's next for uh, Planetary for the St. Ives project, both in terms of public outreach and regulatory approval, Pete? So from a regulatory approval standpoint, um, we have been asked by the regulator there, it's called the Environment Agency. Um, the EA has asked for a bunch of information from us. We, we gave them a proposal um, last, we started early last year to do an initial trial, which we completed last September. We then applied for the next test, the next project, and we gave them a proposal in November. They gave us initial approval um, in December, and they encouraged us. They said, we're very encouraging of this. Um, they asked for more information. We gave them that information in February of this year, and we are now waiting for them to go through all of their evaluation, including, I think, um, some kind of independent assessment. So we, from a regulatory approval standpoint, in, um, in Cornwall, we are waiting for the go-ahead from the local regulator. In Halifax, we're actually a little bit further ahead, and the local regulator has said, um, there's one more item that we need to do, but it's kind of a checkbox item. And so they've uh, uh, approved this next, this next uh, project. From a community engagement point of view, we believe that this is actually good for the community and we want to be there with the community for a long period. And so we are in it for the long haul. And so we continue to reach out to members of the community. We continue to answer questions. We continue to have community engagement sessions that are hosted by uh, different groups. We recently had one with a local member of parliament. Um, we will have one shortly with um, another uh, regulatory agency there, another community uh, government group. Um, and so we continue the process of listening and listening to be educated and continuing to inform people or educating them outside. So we continue to listen and learn from the community and we try to continue to educate and inform what our plans are and what our proposals are and what our long-term vision is for helping to improve um, and maintain the waters of Cornwall. Because if we don't do anything in Cornwall, those waters will continue to get acidic. They'll get more acidic and there will be fewer crustaceans and over time, the fishing industry will collapse. That is something that scientists tell us is true. So um, I think I'd love to hear from both of you what lessons you learned from the St. Ives Bay project. Will, I'll start with you and then move on to Pete. Yeah, a lot would be the answer to that lessons we've learned. I, I think moving back to what you had said previously about um, the protesters and, and them having a really good handle on, on things, I think Part of that is is attributed to the work that Pete and Mike and, and myself to a lesser degree put in 
after those initial discussions, there was, as Pete said, this quite a lot of uh, misinformation that was spread about the specifics of, of our project and a lot, a lot of work was put in with specific groups and on a, you know through our website and through emails to sort of write the the narrative um you know correctly so i think that that is one reason why why that did shine through in those in those protests um and as pete said one of the key lessons learned there was not providing readily accessible information we came in personally thinking that we had all the information but people obviously wanted to learn more and going to our website led to more questions than answers and that led to things sort of spiraling in the wrong direction so the lesson as pete already alluded to is that you have to make sure there's a really solid footing for the project scope that people can go and read on their own time um and you know we we came into those initial meetings in a space where people were coming in with a bad mindset based on what they'd learned elsewhere and it, i think a lot of what we said in the meeting wasn't wasn't heard because uh, you know rightfully so people had come in with had been given the wrong impression so so you, you know it's easy to look in hindsight about about that preparation and think and knowing how much more we could and should have done but there really was that was a really key um, element that was missing you know from my perspective Someone asked me last week um, what a company like ours needs, like what's something that could be done right now to help us along this path. And, and one thing I thought about is, you know, you had had a question in here earlier about what industry can do to make people feel more comfortable. Well, the, the reality is people aren't going to be totally comfortable with industry making these decisions in the first place, right? It needs to be coming from other sources. And so, you know, there's a fairly big scientific community building of, you know, truly interested people who want to learn about these solutions. They really believe that this type of ocean alkalinity enhancement potentially could be viable and safe and big and, and impactful. And a lot of those folks are in a situation where they they don't feel comfortable speaking about how they think about this work you know it's still fairly controversial they work at universities or government agencies and they they sort of feel as if they can't share you know, that openly about it my idea was you know this this sort of thing needs to become more mainstream from people that aren't planetary technologies people who just you know are a, a world leading scientist in say ocean acidification, someone who studied it their entire career and now think, okay, this is a really viable solution. I really want to figure out if this works because it, it might be big. And so having that voice at the table is gonna make a big difference, not to everybody. Some people may not wanna hear from scientists either, but you know, it's, it's gonna be a big step up from the private company that you know, people for right or for wrong make assumptions that we're in it to make money. And, um, and that's a, you know, you can draw that parallel quite easily. And it, and in a lot of cases is probably fair, but, you know, people from planetary tech have come into this company from a lot of, you know, odd spaces, because we all believe in the, the facing the challenge at hand. And, you know, the whole making money thing is just something we don't think about. And so, but that's not, that's not going to be compelling to the public. So that that's one thing I would say, I would love to see happen in the near term um, 
and I'll let Pete talk about more lessons. Yeah, I'd, I'd like to amplify something that Will said. There is not an appreciation in the eyes of the public um, or in the minds of the public that the ocean is a very important player in the fight against climate change. And so one thing that I would, if I could ask anyone to do, it's like, let's make the oceans a real thing in terms of, uh, of addressing climate change. That's very important. But um, the lessons that I take away from our um, interactions in Cornwall are first be, uh, be transparent early, right? We feel like we've been transparent, but we started a little bit late. Um, so, uh, and I've mentioned that a couple of times, but second, um, especially for, the, I mean, the way that the industry is being funded now is through private means. And most companies are quote for-profit companies. And so that, that's the entire industry up to be not trusted, right? Because there is uh, perhaps one could from the outside look at this and say, your primary motivation is money. And so while I don't think that's the case of planetary, I know that's not my personal place. Um, it, it's a reasonable place for someone outside to think your primary uh, motivation is money. And so in addition to being transparent early, find someone who can audit you in some way or another, right? And so we have an external auditor who will audit us, um, our uh, carbon accounting, for example. We also have an external auditor, it's called PML applications. They are an external body. Um, find organizations that can um, review what you say and vouch for it. Just say, yes, what these people are saying either is true or by the way, no, that's not true. And um, it's something that the um, that the public can trust, so that there is not necessarily this conflict of interest. That's one of the things that you know. I, when I've spoken to people who say we want you to slow down um, at at any of the different sites where we are starting, um, and we say uh, why is that? And the reason that I hear mostly is because we want an independent evaluation of this approach, generally. And that's for the scientific community to provide, I think. But then also in my specific case. So that's the lessons that I learned in addition to the lessons that, that Will has mentioned. Well, Pete and Will, thank you so much for your time. Really quickly, Pete, give us in, in like 30 seconds, what's your one piece of advice for the broader CDR community before I say goodbye to you both? My piece of advice to the broader CDR community is transparency early, and with a an auditor or a verifier and listen very closely, put yourself in their shoes, not in your shoes trying to promote something, but understand it from someone else's perspective. Well, Pete, well, I really appreciate the work you're doing. I really appreciate you guys taking a leadership role in this community outreach. I wish you the best of luck in all of your projects and thank you so much for joining me. Thanks so much for listening to Carbon Removal Newsroom. If you like the show, the best way you can help us is by giving us a great rating and review in Apple Podcasts, following the show on Spotify, and by sharing the show on social media. Tell your friends and help us spread the word about what's happening in the world of carbon removal.
Thanks so much for listening to Carbon Removal Newsroom. If you like the show, the best way you can help us is by giving us a great rating and review in Apple Podcasts, following the show on Spotify, and by sharing the show on social media. Tell your friends and help us spread the word about what's happening in the world of carbon removal. Thank you.